verses 1 to 9. The words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. What, O my son, and what, O my son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, or your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed, and pervert the rights of all afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his trouble no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth and judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Well, these are the words of King Lemuel, but actually, where did they come from? His mother. His mother. So these are actually the words King Lemuel is writing that his mother taught him. I don't know anything about King Lemuel, nor his mother, but she had some very wise things to say to this king. She starts out with these questions. What, O my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows? Now, she was obviously very close to him. She, he was his, her son. She bore him. And she, son of my vows makes me wonder if maybe she'd done something like Hannah and made a vow to dedicate him to God or something like that, calling him the son of her vows. Um, but whatever, she gives him warnings and some exhortations. Now these are appropriate warnings to a king. What does she, what does she warn him about in verse 3? Women. Yes. What about women? Don't give your strength to them? Yes. You know, she's warning about sexual temptation. Don't any politicians that have hurt their career because of uh, what they've done with women. There's been a bunch of them. You know, Clinton, to some extent, did. Um, but, you know, there were those celebrated governor cases just a fairly, well, four or five years ago or whatever, maybe not that long, uh, a Democrat governor in, in New York that probably might have been a presidential candidate at some point. Ended up, he was spending mega bucks per hour for women in different places, and just a huge scandal with him. He had to resign in disgrace, and just terrible. And then a Republican governor in South Carolina that had some mistress in Argentina, and turned out he was a family values guy, and you know, real conservative and moral, and all that. <laughs> Obviously, destroyed his career, and people talked about him maybe being a presidential candidate one day. But the fact that he you know, had this affair going on, just destroyed him. He had to resign in disgrace, and so forth and so on. It's stupid for a king to misbehave himself with women. It'll just cause trouble. Truth of the matter is, it doesn't help anybody to misbehave with women. You know, think about some of the things that sexual temptation can do for a king. It can, you know, distract him and cause him to waste a lot of money and really interfere with his wisdom and judgment, can create quarrels. There's just all kinds of terrible stuff that happens when guys start fooling around with women they have no, no right to. And for a king to do that is just going to mess him up. 
comments, thoughts? Almost seems to me like people in high positions tend to do that more. It's almost like an ego thing. They can get these women, you know, liking them, wanting them, and all that. And uh, so just be very careful in any position, but especially the higher you rise, the more tempting it is because when you got money to throw around and you got position, then the girls are going to throw themselves on you more. You've got to be very wise and use your head. All right? The other thing she warns him against in 4 to 7 is what? Strong drink. Yeah, alcohol abuse. Well, isn't that true? Man. There have been so many rulers that have really destroyed themselves by becoming drunk. Um, you know, alcohol and immorality both impair your judgment. You don't make wise decisions when you're drunk. And uh, the Bible says that all over the place. You know, Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. Sexual sin and alcohol mess up your thinking. You do dumb stuff when you're under the influence of a woman or a bop. Um, can you think of some examples in the Bible of people who d did stupid things because they were drunk? Like, uh, yes. Laban? Lot. Lot. Lot, yes. Good point. How about stupid rulers? Stupid rulers who did stupid things when they were drunk. Herod. Herod. What did he do? Uh, made a foolish promise. Yeah, promised up to half his kingdom to his stepdaughter. That was not the brightest thing he ever, you know, promised. Besides that, he really wasn't the king, so if she'd asked for half his kingdom, he'd have a really tough time delivering. He just liked the title king, maybe while he wasn't the king of anything. Um, Xerxes. Xerxes, yeah, the foolish order uh, for Vashti to come, and is that what you're thinking about? Yes, and later when they had another party in, he signed the decree for all the Jews to be annihilated with Haman. Yes, now the, the partying was after that, perhaps. So I don't know if he was drunk when he actually gave Haman the signet ring, but maybe. <laughs> Sounded like something you'd do when you were drunk. <laughs> Can you think of other rulers that did stupid things when they were drinking? I think uh, his name was Belshazzar. Belshazzar. The right hand. Yes, excellent. Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar was drinking and abusing the temple vessels and worshiping idols. And that's when the hand started writing stuff, stuff on the wall and it sobered him up right quick. You know, as you can imagine. And that night, that very night, the Persians invaded and destroyed his kingdom. You know, uh, there's a, uh, Ben Hadad in 1 Kings 20, uh, who was drinking when the Israelites attacked. He was the king of Aram or Syria, depending on your translation, and so forth and so on. Dumb to drink. You know, you don't make smart decisions. Now, I mean, in practical terms, guys, what's the best way to avoid becoming a drunk? Don't drink. Don't drink. You know, it's a really smart thing. We are not in one of these cultures where, you know, weakened wine is a normal beverage, you know, that people just drink because they don't have Cokes. 
We got all kinds of Cokes, clean water, and other stuff. So almost everybody who drinks today, you, you think about this. You've got friends and people you know that drink. If you told one of them who was, you know, used to having a few beers or whatever, well, why don't you drink a few Cokes tonight instead? Would it be the same for them? No. For most of them, it's not because they're so thirsty. You know, they just had to have this beer. It's because they feel better with a little alcohol to loosen them up, to make them feel more confident, to make them feel less worried and more comfortable, and things like that. So what does that say the alcohol is doing to them? It's affecting them. It's affecting their mind. They're not so serious. They're not so cautious. They're not so sober as they had been. If you want to have good judgment, stay away from alcohol. We always want good judgment serving God. You know, we don't want to risk not having that. So it just makes sense for us to stay away from it. Just don't go there. You know, same thing with drugs. Same principle. Drugs really fit in the same thing as alcohol abuse. It doesn't, you know, when, when we're talking about being drunk, aren't there various substances that are used to make alcoholic beverages? What are some substances that they make alcoholic beverages out of? Various grains or the other very common Grape. grapes. Now grapes and grain are two entirely different products, but they'll make some kind of alcoholic beverage. He's not distinguishing between one or the other. Well, add drugs in there. They come from other substances, but they have the same effect. They make you feel something, but they take away your soberness. Well, what's the best way to avoid becoming a drug addict? Don't do any drugs. You know, it just makes sense. Eric. Also the long-term effects of it. Uh, there's somebody that came to the Brentwood Church recently and I tried studying with him. He had become homeless at one point and indicated to me that he got heavy into drugs or something like that. And he's 23 years old. And I tried studying with him once now and he couldn't look at anybody in the eye and he, he had literally tried to pluck out his eye at one point because he's just so messed up from the things he had done. Sometimes those things have permanent effects that cannot be reversed. So that's dangerous. And, uh, you know, it's just... It, it, do you want to have impaired judgment? Do you want to not be able to think straight? And, and I'll, I'll suggest one more thing that is so common anymore. Prescription drugs. That's always been somewhat common. But right now, it seems to me like there's a resurgence of prescription drug abuse. Be careful. Be careful. Don't ever, I would say don't ever take prescription drugs above what the doctor prescribes. Don't take somebody else's. And don't always even take what the doctor prescribes. Be, be watchful. Be thoughtful. Might get a second opinion. I mean, I, you know, antibiotics are not what we're talking about. Or, you know, Tylenol. You know, it's not what you're talking about. But other kinds of things to deal with pain 
and mood-related, you know, drugs and so forth, some of them are really addicting and have some really bad consequences. What she says here is very interesting. In verses 6 and 7, who does she say ought to drink? Who should you give strong drink to? One who is perishing or in bitter distress. Why? So he can forget. Yes. Don't give wine to rulers, because they need to remember. Give it to the people who are in terrible pain or shape, and that way it knocks them out, and they don't ever have to face how terrible their life is. That's a sarcastic statement. You know, this is irony. She's not saying give drink to them. She's saying that's all it's good for, just to put somebody out of their misery, just to make them not think about it if their life is so wretched that it'd be better for them just to be in a drunken stupor all the time and not have to deal with reality. You know, is that the way you want your life to be? You want to just not have to deal with it anymore? You know, well, just stay drunk. You know, stay hot. Uh, it, that's just sarcastic. It's saying, certainly anybody who wants to think straight or make any wise decisions or have any responsibility, stay away from the alcohol. Great lesson from her. And if a lot of you know, people had done that, they'd be so much better off. You know, the thing that happens with all that stuff is, once you get into it, it is just overwhelming. I've been studying with a man <coughs> who is, um, he was a highly respected professional person, but he lived a lot of his life taking drugs to deal with, <laughs> deal with the stress and pressure. He ended up in prison for several years, not that much younger than I am, very talented, capable, intelligent, personable. Yeah. He's gotten out. He was, he was very religious when he was in prison for the 10 years. He's gotten out and let his life just get unraveled because he went back to the drinking and then from there it's gone downhill. You know, it's so, so foolish. But he's always dealt with stress with alcohol and drugs, mostly drugs. And so every time he gets in a stressful situation, he just automatically wants to turn to something to keep him from having to deal with it. Don't do that. Don't get started with that. You know, Instead of trying to pop something, smoke something, or drink something to deal with things, deal with them with the Lord. Turn to God and face them. You know, that's the thing we struggle with, is just facing things straight up without feeling like we need some artificial assistance to handle them. Comments? Well, here's the positive statements to the king in verses 8 and 9. What does she want her son to do? Speak for those who can't. Yes, speak for those who can't. Be the champion of the rights of the poor and the needy. That's a part of the king's responsibility. He needs to, um, you know, help people that don't have any clout, that don't have any power. So he's not supposed to focus on the privileges of being king, but the responsibilities of being king. You're king to help people. You're king to stand up for the rights of people who are not being treated fairly and righteously. That's the way governing officials ought to govern. 
They ought to stand up for the rights of people who are not being treated fairly. So what don't do? No immoral relationships, no substance abuse. You know, what to do? Open your mouth for the rights of the people who are not getting treated properly. Comments or questions? Yes? I think that is like such an escape tactic, like the idea of I'm going to go to alcohol, I'm going to go to drugs. And the problem is that then you never learn how to deal with your problems. And yes. I've never been in Alcoholics Anonymous, but apparently they say that if you are an alcoholic and you get out of it, you have to like start where you, you have to pick up where you left off and start learning how to deal with things. So the whole time all you're doing is setting yourself back if you ever do get out of it, now you've got to go back to the maturity you were at when you started and learn how to deal with life. Precisely. It's a great way to put that. That's exactly what happens. We have developed a habit of escaping rather than dealing with things that are stressful or difficult. So you feel stressed. I need a, I need a bottle. I need a shot. I need a smoke, you know, of marijuana or whatever. I need something to calm me down. But what you're really wanting is something to take your mind away from it. Well, what happens? You got some stressful problem. You get drunk. What happens when you come back down? The problem go away? Still there. It's probably worse, yeah. And you got the guilt and whatever other consequences there were to getting drunk. On top of that, you know, sometimes we'll do that with other things. You know, we can relate, we can react to stressful things by video game addiction or by other things that we use to try to escape from the reality. You know, is it bad to do something for fun? No. In general, it's not bad to have clean fun. But if every time you face something stressful, you, you want to go have fun instead of dealing with it. That's also unwise. <coughs> it's better to schedule your fun rather than just to do it because you feel stressed right now. Deal with stress. Face it. Do what you need to do. You know what a lot of times our stress is from? We got something we ought to do and we don't feel like it. And how do you feel better about that? Do it. Whatever it is, just do what you need to do. Maybe it's going to be stressful. Well, face it, stressful. Do it. Get it over with. Get it behind you. But you got a conversation you got to have that you're not looking forward to. You got some task to do that you hate. Get it done and take the stress away from you. Just escaping by turning to something else to get your mind off of it temporarily doesn't really help you deal with that stress. I think those principles would help us so much. Other thoughts? Well, this whole last section of Proverbs is a whole nother thing. And I want to talk to you about it for a little bit before we actually uh, try to go into it a little. Um, verses 10 to 31, if you count correctly, has 22 verses. Remember, you can't just subtract and something like that. You have to count both end verses. So there's 22 verses in 10 to 31. They are an acrostic poem. Hebrew has 22 letters. And every verse in this starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
So it's an acrostic poem, just like Psalm 119, and just like most of Lamentations, etc. And so it's a, you know, if, if it was English, it was English, verse 10 would start with an A, verse 11 would start with a B, verse 12 would start with a C, etc. It's Hebrew. So verse 10 starts with Aleph, and verse 11 starts with Baith, and verse 12 starts with Gimel, etc. You can't tell that in English. <laughs> Don't start looking down there to try to find some English pattern of the first letters. We can't do that because you can't translate acrostics. But that's what it is. So this is a unit. This is a carefully designed unit. And it's praising this woman. Now, I want to suggest some things about that. I think you can read this at more than one level that's productive. On one hand, this is praising a good woman. And it gives you some qualities of a good woman. You know, you want to become a godly wife, mother, a godly, a godly woman? Read this, study this, and apply this. I think that's one level at which you can read this at. And a lot of us have done that and have thought, this is the kind of woman I'm looking to marry, or we've thought, this is the kind of woman I want to become, or whatever. But there's a second level at which you could look at this. The book of Proverbs has presented wisdom as being a woman. And basically, this is kind of describing lady wisdom. This is, this is the kind of behavior that she exhibits. In fact, I believe this section pretty much sums up everything Proverbs has been saying about wisdom. And it ends up emphasizing the virtues that are praised throughout Proverbs. And you'll see that as we go through this. Um, so this poem basically captures the ideals of wisdom that are presented in the book. This is a great summary of really the principles Proverbs tells about presented as a, in a personal terms. You know, if somebody just lived out Proverbs wisdom, here's what she'd look like. So that's kind of what we ought to think about as we go through this. Seeing this as a godly woman, but also trying to see these as the summary principles of wisdom. Comments or questions about that? Is this written by Lemuel? I don't really know. I, I guess I would assume it is, but I couldn't prove that. Yeah, good question. Other thoughts? That's kind of the introduction to that. Would somebody read, we'll just kind of work through a little bit of this. Would somebody read um, 10 to, uh, let's do 10 to 16. A worthy woman who can find, for her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband trusteth in her, and he shall have no lack of gain. She doth him good and not evil all the days of her life, and she seeks wool and flax and work and works willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her bread from afar. She rises also while it is yet night, and giveth food to her household, and their task to, the maiden, to her maidens. She considers the field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Okay. Wow, it's so amazing to find a woman like this. Her worth is far above jewels. Now you think about back in that time period, 
Do you remember what a guy would do with a girl's parents if he wanted to marry her? Pay. Pay. What do we call that that was paid? A dowry. Well, you can't pay a big enough dowry for a woman like this. You know, her worth just surpasses jewels. They haven't got enough golden Fort Knox for a woman like this. She's really worth a lot. And from a practical standpoint, if you think about this as being a woman, guys, you find a woman like this, she's worth everything. It's rare to find one like this. If you do, <laughs> you know, make sure you uh, do everything you can to uh, get her to be your wife. Because uh, <laughs> most of you will probably not end up finding one of this quality. That's, that's the way that usually goes. Uh, that's, this, is, this is wow. Now, I, might, I, say, I would say this is interesting in view of some of the early chapters of Proverbs. Do you remember the woman that kept being you know, depicted in the early chapters of Proverbs? Who is that? The adulterous woman? The adulterous woman. We saw a lot about her. Especially chapter 5 and chapter 7, chapter 9 sort of. Uh, well, was Solomon, you know, or maybe the compiler of Proverbs, just down on women? Well, no. Here's a, here's a great balance. This is the kind of woman that you'd want to be. There are some fine women in life, and here is one. So, looking at this on the literal level, uh, this describes a good woman that balances out those earlier chapters. Thoughts and comments on 10? Well, verse 11, what is he saying about this worthy woman? She's trustworthy? Yes. Her husband can totally trust her. She's reliable. You know, um, there's nothing that would make her husband not trust her. And, and, and believe she will always do the right thing. She does, he will have no lack of gain. You know, here's a woman, she is going to multiply the family's resources, not consume them. You know, you marry her, she will be a financial asset, not a liability. <laughs> we'll see that throughout this chapter. This woman is on the ball. <laughs> You know, and, and she will be a blessing to her husband in every way, really. You know, you marry a woman like this, you will become a better man. You know, behind every good man, behind most good men at least, stands really good wives. Good wives can make men so much better all the way around. And so you get a wife that's really got great character, and great traits like this one, you know, wow, it's great as a husband to be able to trust in her, and it just blesses him over and over again. And verse 12, she's consistent, you know, she's not temperamental, she's always an asset, she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. You know, you can always trust her to constantly be doing good for her husband and not hurting him in some way. You know, it's always bad when, when you're the kind of person that you're kind of wishy-washy. You know, sometimes you're helpful, sometimes you're not. But what a blessing as a man to find a woman that's always doing you good, 
Comments and thoughts through 12. In 13, she looks for wool and flax and works her hands in delight. She is industrious. You know, she is gathering raw materials for this, um, I guess she makes fabric, she and her servants. And uh, she works a lot. Um, you know, we have, we'll see this all throughout this, but I'll mention this. I, I just, uh, I'll use it, I'll use this by way of illustration. I just uh, received some messages over the last few days from a Brazilian brother that I've not met. He's 19, and uh, he's, not a, he's not been a Christian very long. But he has noticed some passages <coughs> where in the New Testament it talks about a woman should be a good housewife. Literally, the way the Portuguese reads is that. She ought to be a good housewife. And so he's questioning whether or not it's right for a woman to do any work outside of keeping up the home. Well, I think this passage shows we're not dealing with a woman who only knows how to cook and clean and change diapers. Here's a woman, I'm not saying she's got some outside job per se, but she's busy and active and she's making stuff and selling it. And she's, I'm saying that to say that sometimes we have this image of a godly woman that she never does anything other than strict things that we might consider domestic tasks. Well, this certainly shows that women can do far more than that and be godly women. I think it's a good passage to show. You know, we kind of have to have the balance. You know, we've had this push in society to liberate women. And women are thought of as just being, you know, female men. That ought to just have their career, there ought to be career women, and children and husbands are kind of an irrelevant nuisance. Get rid of them, let woman be who she can be. You know, I'm woman, watch me war, kind of thing. You know, well, that's certainly unbiblical. You know, a woman's primary focus should be her husband and her children. I think the Bible teaches that. But consistent with that, it doesn't mean, when she's to be a keeper at home, it doesn't mean you're to keep her at home. Does it mean that she's supposed to just be in some way limited and she has nothing productive to do? So you'll look at all of this, it says about her, she is on the ball. You know, she is going places and doing stuff now, this is not, though, when you see her doing all this stuff, this is not her fulfilling herself. This is not her trying to find some, trying to find herself and show that she's just as good as any man can be and she can handle everything herself. It's not like that. She is doing this for her family. She is a servant of her husband and her children. She's very capable in that. This whole idea of a woman trying to prove herself by showing all that she can do for herself is not a biblical model. And you see that all through this, she's constantly concerned about her servants, about her children, about her husband, about other needy people. She is, she is doing all that she's doing to serve, not to elevate herself. So we really need this balance. This is a good passage to help us see how to look at women in that. You have some comments and thoughts about all that? Okay. 
sometimes we think of service in general just as a thing that we have to do and we have to get through it and it's a hard thing to do. Uh, but her attitude here is that she does it in delight, it says. Um, and I think that's a really cool thing for us. When we're serving, um, when this woman is serving, when we're doing different things, we should be doing it because we want to and we enjoy doing it. Yes. Uh, not because it's a job we have to do. Great point. She wants to be a blessing to her family. Yes. I knew a homeschool mom who was out doing things with her, her kids and came across a woman who was checking her out and she commented like, <clears throat> the, the cashier commented that you know she couldn't be a stay-at-home mom, she would just you know, be so cooped up and you know, couldn't do anything, whereas she was the one sitting out behind the cashier for <laughs> eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, uh, it all depends on how you look at those things, doesn't it? And it depends on your mentality. You know, what a blessing for a mother to be able to do well for her children and for her husband. In verse 14, she's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. Here's a woman who travels far and wide, maybe to buy food at the best prices for the best quality for her family. You know, she, she's, she's not, you know, somebody who does things the easy way. She's somebody who does things the best way. So she's willing to go far away, in fact, you know, to do what she needs to do. She doesn't just do things conveniently. You can imagine that she's, she's a person that you'd like to be her child because you'd eat a lot better than everybody else. You know, she and we'd like to be her husband because she doesn't it doesn't cost much for her to fix a good table. Um, she rises also while it's still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. So she puts the well-being of her household above her own comfort. She's energetic. She's getting up early in the morning to take care of her her household, her family, her servants. You know, she is not lazy. You know, sometimes people have depicted stay-at-home moms as, well, that's just lazy. You know, that's because you don't want to do anything. Just sit around on the couch and watch soap operas. Well, there's some mothers who do that. That, that, exactly, that certainly happens. And, and some who use being a stay-at-home mom as an excuse just to be lazy and not act. But she is a mother and a wife. There is nothing idle about her. She is a hard-working, diligent, active woman. Now, do you see in this how already she is modeling many of these principles of Proverbs? Like hard work and wise investments and planning ahead and caring for other people and respecting the spouse. And she's all, We already see how she kind of is the summing up of these Proverbs qualities. And uh, verse, verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's got a good business mind. She works hard. She's, she's providing for her family. But again, she, she buys a field. <laughs> you know, she, she's capable. You know, a woman who dedicates herself to taking care of her husband and her children doesn't mean she's dumb or incapable. Here's a woman, she even knows how to what field to buy and probably what price to pay for it and whatever. She's good at things. But she uses what she's good at to benefit other people, not to add to her resume. You know, to think about it that way, to be a woman 
who uses a lot of talent, ability, and energy to take good care of her family and to be a real asset to them. That's the, that's the kind of mentality that we need to have. Comments and thoughts on all that? Yes? I got this fortune cookie one time that said a, a woman who seeks to be equal to men lacks ambition. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Because really this is the highest possible calling not to be some selfish person trying to just look out for herself, but our highest goal always is to serve. If the Lord serves us, if Jesus serves us, there's nothing higher we can be than a servant. Those who humble themselves are being exalted. But so often we think in prideful terms where we have to be selfish, and that's the only way to stand up for ourselves. Most often, just the people reading through the Bible, the people that were most successful were the ones who were servants. Yes. And even the rulers, like reading through the kings, the ones that tried to be rulers and, you know, take everything and have a lot, they were successful and they didn't last very long. But the ones that were serving the people and serving the Lord, they were more successful and pleasing to God. Absolutely. Yeah, it was what we've got to constantly remember and think. We're in this self-focused age where we're trying to just exalt ourselves at everybody else's expense, but the, the right manner of life is to serve. Other thoughts? Alright, well I'm going to stop here and we're going to pick, finish the rest of this next time. Um,